Hello and welcome to the Miko Bits show and I'm your host Miko Bits. This is really your place if you're finding it hard to keep up with DeFi, Bitcoin and blockchain. Uh, it seems like a full-time job sometimes so you know if, if so please feel free to subscribe. Uh, I do answer all comments so you know if you have comments or questions about the show uh, just use the comments below. So today I have an exciting episode for you. I have uh, Amrit and Michael who are principals at Zilliqa and Zilliqa is a novel layer one uh, chain. So it's absolutely kind of a deep infrastructure for blockchain. And, uh, you know, it's going to be, I think, exciting to explore both the properties, the unique differentiation of the layer one, as well as the ecosystem. So I think those are the exciting parts to uh, unpack with this. So, you know, as with all of my shows, it's an opinion and information show. So it's not intended to be investment advice. So if you are looking for investment advice, uh, seek a duly licensed professional. So without any further ado, uh, here is Michael and Amrit. Hello, Miko. Hello. Uh, just a quick uh, viewer's note, I do have the names reversed on the screen, so the gentleman on your left is Amrit and the gentleman on the right is Michael, so uh, just, just to clarify for everyone viewing. So um, yeah, would love to just get a quick intro, uh, first of all, uh, just to really get uh, maybe Amrit you can go first and talk about sort of uh, you know your background and your role in the Zilliqa ecosystem and, uh, you know, and then we'll do the same with Michael. Sure. So, hello everyone. My name is Michael. Uh, sorry, I've, I've been <laughs> with the names there now. Uh, my name is Amrit. I uh, my background is in research. So, uh, I studied in India where I did mathematics, and then I moved over to France where I did engineering. And after that, I decided to do my PhD uh, in again in France. Uh, my you know why during my PhD I was mostly interested in uh, security and privacy of software systems. So for example, let's say if you download a software, let's say your antivirus, on your machine, what sort of implications it has on your security and privacy? So let's say for example, antivirus may scan all your files, and it may send some information to to backend servers, and how that can impact your privacy is something that I was looking into. But also from data structure point of view, so many of these softwares actually use certain data structures. And some data structures are well known to be sort of prone to security attacks, while others are not. So it was also interesting for my, for me to understand what sort of data structures actually being used in those those software systems. So anyway, uh, I finished my PhD, and then I was looking for around the same time, you know, blockchain and Bitcoin was becoming interesting, an interesting topic of research for academics, because until then people were obviously excited about uh, you know blockchains and Bitcoin, but it was more from from the developer point of view, so people who were interesting about interested about what Bitcoin can do to change the world, they were really interesting. But but you know, researchers were still sort of waiting uh, to see what sort of interesting problems could come out of Bitcoin. So that was another time when I decided to sort of switch over and see if there are some interesting problems to look into into Bitcoin. And uh, eventually, I started to you know study uh, privacy in Monero. Uh, so that was kind of my first venture into Bitcoin you know, blockchains. I read the white paper of Monero first, then decided to move over to Bitcoin's white paper. And so it was it was an interesting experience. Uh, you know, we published a paper uh, in one of the conferences uh, in security and privacy. 
And then about that time, you know, I was thinking about what to do next. And this was when my advisor from, I was back then at the, at, in Singapore. And my advisor there said, oh, look, uh, he had published a paper on sharding and smart contracts. And he said, look, uh, you know, I want to commercialize this whole project. Uh, would you be interested in joining me? And this is how many of the team members uh, you know, started to work on this project that eventually became Zilliqa. So my, my role at Zilliqa is basically at the, at the team level, I'm the president and chief science, science officer, so I help basically lead the team. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know, as, as any startup, uh, when you start, you have to do everything uh, from, from you know, writing the white paper to writing code uh, to managing the community, building the team and so on. So I have, I have gone through that journey at Zilliqa from day zero. Uh, so that's that's a short intro and a long, long intro. What I do? Oh, fantastic! I'll, I'll I'll be really interested to talk data structures with you. Uh, so, Michael, uh, on to you. Sure. So, uh, you know, my background is is uh, kind of the opposite from Omri. Uh, my background is deep in the traditional financial sector. I used to work uh, with Société Générale and their uh, asset management and private banking and uh, security services custody affiliates globally. So I used to run uh, corporate development for them uh, globally uh, with a specific focus on their U.S. affiliates. So we, at the time, acquired part of the Rockefeller family office, uh, built a private banking business across Canada, uh, built a, a, a hedge fund and private equity business kind of globally within Trust Company of the West. Uh, and helped to run our, our Greater China uh, VC focused fund called AsiaVest. Uh, ultimately, uh, with, with Societe Generale and, and with Trust Company of the West, we ended up doing a, a management buyout with Carla as a sponsor uh, for Trust Company of the West, uh, and then uh, left from there. And, and then I went to Alliance Bernstein. So, uh, you know, at TCW, we managed about 250 billion of assets US. Uh, at Alliance Bernstein, it was about 600 billion. Uh, and while there, again, uh, helped to, to run the alternatives area. So again, hedge funds, private equity, VC, energy infrastructure. I spent a lot of time really there trying to, to work on financial inclusion more than anything else. So uh, democratization of access to private equity and to hedge funds. So we created liquid retail hedge funds at the time, which were effectively looking to duplicate the performance of hedge funds, but in the mutual fund market. So again, uh, trying to get people involved in these high alpha generating opportunities that traditionally wouldn't be involved if they were not accredited investors. Uh, so was there for, for a couple of years. And then when I left there at the end of 2015, I kind of jumped uh, headfirst into the FinTech uh, digital asset blockchain space. Uh, and uh, you know, I've worked globally since. So I was in Hong Kong, I was uh, in Estonia, uh, but in 2017, I was in Toronto and founded a company called Ether Capital, which was the first publicly traded uh, Ethereum-focused investment uh, company. So we, we raised about $50 million and through a reverse takeover, took that public in Canada. Uh, that company now uh, is about $100 uh, million market cap and is now currently in the news as a sub-advisor on uh, the world's first uh, Bitcoin ETF run by sister company Purpose financial. So I think that raised about half a billion of assets in about a week. Uh, so, so since then, I've been an entrepreneur in the space. Uh, but uh, around mid uh, 2019, began talking to uh, the team at Zillica and ended up joining them at the beginning of last year, in uh, February 2020. 
uh, relocated from Los Angeles to Singapore. And uh, uh, my, my official title within Zillica was uh, head of corporate development. Uh, so, you know, worked pretty closely with Omri and the rest of the team on commercialization opportunities for the platform, how to think about ways to generate revenues and how to make uh, good investments off the platform. Uh, and in furtherance of that, uh, Omri and I and kind of the rest of the team decided it made sense to create uh, an ecosystem focused uh, uh, investment company. And so that's what we did. So I'm now uh, the CEO uh, and co-chief investment officer of Zilka Capital, which is a kind of a permanent capital company, call it like the, the Berkshire Hathaway of, of FinTech and, and DeFi uh, focused in and around the Zilka space. And, uh, and that's kind of what, what I've been focused on. So, you know, still partnering with Omri and the rest of the team on ways to kind of benefit Zillica, the layer one, and then also thinking at the same time about ways to, to bring uh, additional meaningful funding uh, into the ASEAN and India region uh, for Zillica and, uh, and the products around it. Yeah, that's very exciting. And uh, what I wanted to disclose to my audience is that, uh, you know, uh, Michael, uh, Amrit, and I are all in discussions with the possibility that I might join uh, the board of Zillica Capital, uh, so that that is something I should disclose. Um, you know, I, I guess getting back to kind of Zillica as a layer one, um, you know, what I'd love to do is kind of give you a challenge, right? Which is that, you know, one of the things that is very popular in L1, especially for kind of arbitrary uh, compute and applications is, of course, the Ethereum blockchain. You mentioned the ETH, the Ethereum fund, Michael, that you worked on in the past. So, you know, obviously yeah. Ethereum is a tremendously proficient and robust chain. Uh, you know, layer two scalability is coming. Uh, and in fact, it's already here in the form of ZK as well as optimistic rollups. You know, obviously there's uh, gas uh, EIPs coming. So like, you know, I think that the very common answers of ours is faster, you know, may not be sufficient. So I guess my, my question would be, you know, what is what is the differentiation for Zillica? And, you know, uh, it's just to give you a little bit of exciting, probably not the first person to ask the question in the history of the world, but, you know, maybe uh, Amrit, maybe you can take a swipe at it. Sure. So, uh, well, uh, the main reason why we started Zillica was uh, based on this idea of sharding, because we felt that and this was an idea that we started as our first academic paper. So that was the first paper that was published in academic literature that basically showed to, to people that you could actually apply this idea of sharding uh, into public blockchain. So until then, it was not known or it was not well thoroughly studied uh, how to do that in practice. So uh, one, one you know, very key sort of idea that we started now is some, something that many people are following. Uh, you know, whether it be, I, I, I won't say the Ethereum, you know, followed us, but definitely we started that chain reaction where now several chains are actually pursuing that idea of sharding in many different forms and shapes. Uh, some of obviously trying to improve upon what we have done. So that's that's something that obviously gives us an advantage on what we started with. The second area that uh, we've tried to focus on was around uh, smart contract safety. And this is something again that many people are doing, but you know, our approach has been, I would say, probably the first or second one in that sense where we felt that uh, the language of uh, the smart contract language, the way it was designed, especially Solidity, was sort of designed with, you know, developer features in mind, not so much on security aspects of it. And what ended up happening was that it became so loose or it became so open for people to use that it became very difficult to make sure that any formal guarantees could be, could, could come out of it. Of course, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's impossible, 
but it's very, very difficult. And if you could change the language, or if you could restrict the language in some way, it becomes much easier. So basically what, what we have learned so far is that you basically have a trade-off between how expressive a language can be and how auditable uh, that language could be. So how easy it is to reason about the correctness and safety of that contract. Uh, and and that's, you know, if you, today, if you look at uh, you know, a recent survey made by, I think, Solity team, uh, one of the most hated, and again, it's one of the most, most loved aspects as well, uh, is that uh, Solity is most, one of the most hated aspects of Solity is that it's very close to JavaScript. Even though, even though it definitely makes uh, people who actually develop web applications uh, their life much easier. And that's again because of some of the guarantees that uh, the language doesn't provide. So we also felt that back then we were, when we were you know, building Zilliqa and de developing Zilliqa, we felt that there is an opportunity to actually build a safer language that could be easy to use at the same time be able to provide stronger guarantees. And you know, after that, you know, we saw Viper coming in the Ethereum uh, ecosystem. We saw, I think, recently a language called Fay coming. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, uh, but another language called Fay coming up. Uh, I think after that, I think Cardano started to work on their own language for Plutus, uh, Algorand developed their own language. So, in a way, that created sort of chain reaction where people felt that there's this is an area of development that people need to focus on to make a language better because in the end. Many of these contracts actually handle hundreds of million dollars worth of assets, even billions of dollars worth of assets. And you want to, you want to make sure that those contracts are actually indeed safe to hold that. So these are two sort of key areas which we started with. Again, that has created a lot of different tentacles. Uh, one, me, I, uh, you know, I won't claim that you know we have changed and uh, impacted other people, but we have definitely seen that other people have actually started to work on similar lines as well. So that I feel that there's some contribution that we have made to the blockchain ecosystem. Yeah, I think that uh, what you're noting, I think that is a valuable insight and very deep philosophically is essentially that freedom isn't free, right? And and I know it's a, it's silly for me to say such an abstract thing, but what I'm really trying to drive at is is that, you know, you're talking about this kind of like property of Turing completeness, right? You're talking about the proper, property of essentially having an infinite surface space, surface area, right? So an infinite surface area becomes an infinite attack surface for exploitation and hacking, right? So so obviously constraint models can produce much in the way that like a constraint of a poetic form can produce more creative solutions and more beautiful poetry. You know, it's free free if you look at the history of poetry, free free verse doesn't necessarily win, right? As as the kind of dominant form of poetry that everyone enjoys right so I, th I think you know there is an idea that a constraint can create meaning there are other sort of players attacking in this region of course as you do know uh you know uh, my fund is invested in a effort called agoric and they actually are based not on like solidity not based on javascript but in fact are using javascript itself as the base language but they're adding abstraction layers including role-based security and authentications they're adding uh, abstractions that enable you to form uh, better uh, expressiveness that's more constrained by the security requirements of the application layer so i think that's very exciting so i think the next question might you know kind of head towards Michael, which is more of like an ecosystem question, right? I think you're thinking about an ecosystem fund and investment. So like, from my perspective, like, you know, uh, I'd love to hear from you about sort of what are the killer applications, right? Because obviously, one of the most important things to try to understand is like, you know, optimally, how do you see the, the build out of an ecosystem on top of this novel 
particularly novel language construct. Sure. You know, so, so from my side, you know, there, there's a couple things uh, that we're looking to achieve, uh, you know, from a DeFi or OpenFi perspective. And first and foremost of that is making sure that we have everything properly laid out, you know, from blockchain layer, usability layer, infrastructure layer, and application layer. And if you look at some of the things we've invested in already out of our kind of our acceleration fund internally, you know, some of the killer apps I'd say would be companies like Unstoppable Domains, uh, which, which is kind of a, a domain registry platform that enables developers to build uncensorable websites. We came in very early there uh, with north of 10x returns on our investment. And then subsequent to that, you know, Draper came in to invest there. Uh, Switchio is another major one. It's a, it's a, it's a DAX decentralized exchange that we've been working closely with. That's kind of, we've seen six X returns on that. Uh, and that's something that three arrows, one of the, another major fund here in Singapore came into afterwards. Um, and even extending outside of the DeFi open area into NFTs and, and gaming, one of the companies that we work very closely with is a company called Mintable. Uh, and they just see they just saw some funding come in from Mark Cuban. So, you know, for us, it, it's not necessarily trying to be ahead of the curve with with folks. It's more about building something that makes sense. Uh, if you look at ASEAN and India specifically, there are tremendous numbers of unbanked and underbanked. And part of what we are looking to achieve is building the infrastructure for them to be better served. And whether that's through payments, uh, remittances, lending insurance or investments, uh, those are all angles that I think we can capitalize on. Uh, if you look here in Singapore specifically with our partner Xfers, we have uh, the first uh, Singapore dollar stablecoin that's been out and about and we're working on other projects with them in the region. Uh, the same goes for security token exchange. We're partners here in HGX, which is one of the first active uh, token exchanges globally and especially here in Singapore. So. For us, it's really about building this ecosystem that can allow for the development, allow for the build out of things that contribute to the broader uh, decentralized financial space. Uh, and, and we've seen those opportunities globally. We've made investments here in the region. We've made investments in Europe, uh, US, et cetera. And, and, and that's the thing, it's a global economy. Uh, and that's one of the great things about the team at Zilliqa is it's really a global team as well. So while we are based here in Singapore, we have kind of a real global perspective on things and, and a very open-minded and entrepreneurial way of, of, of collaborating and doing things. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's a very balanced and nuanced answer. Uh, you know, I think one of my early uh, hits was working at the Sun Microsystems with the Java team. And we actually worked very closely with Kleiner Perkins on the Java Fund, which is a venture fund vehicle to promote developers so-called independent software vendors on top of the Java platform and language. So, you know, my kind of understanding and appreciation for the power of capital to enable platform expansion is, is very, uh, you know, I definitely appreciate what you're saying, you know, and I think that there is an element that you alluded to, you know, obviously you were talking about the global nature of it, but I, I also think that there is a regional nature as well, you know, so being headquartered in Singapore, it does provide sort of profound access to economic opportunity in the region, you know, particularly in the Asian South region. And of course, you know, you're an incredibly global 
group of individuals and players but you know one of the my fund is co-invested with you in uh, Zanpool which is a very powerful payments solution provider and you know we're very proud of their uh, economic results they're they're absolutely doing a, a, a wonderful job you know and they're and they're uh, doing a nice job connecting as well with the kind of fundamental economic propositions that are needed in these emerging markets right so in a sense like the they're, they're almost they're fairly indigenous with respect to how they interact with emerging markets right so the the product market fit is it's not generic it's it's very specific and, and they're going country by country so you know i i definitely understand so i think there's a regional play to be made for sure i do think the existence of capital is is exciting to be sure you know i think maybe back to umret i'd love i'd love to kind of zoom in more narrowly right because i think that like obviously from a capital perspective the easiest playbook in the world is to kind of build an alternative alternative right so to build essentially a dex provider and amm and to build like basically everything you see in DeFi on ethereum you can just build on zilliqa and probably do it economically right but i guess i would say that the question that i would have is more like uh, what are kind of platform optimized applications that you can envision, you know, so thing and obviously like from a general perspective, you can say like a more secure anything you see on Ethereum. But I think that that's that's a bit of a cop out. Like I'd, lo I'd love to and obviously like finance requires security, but I I'm, I'm trying to get more of a, a vibe and, you know, any examples that you might have of like, you know, clever ways in which the technology platform enables applications that, you know, would otherwise be uh, probably exceedingly difficult, uh, you know, is probably the better way of looking at it. Impossible, like nothing's impossible. It's more just, you know, economically impractical. So, you know, how, how does, how do you confer advantage? And you know, do you have any examples of that? Yeah, I mean, there are different ways in which certain layer have, could have an advantage over another layer, depending, also depending on what sort of, let's say, basic consensus mechanism they use. For example, let's say if someone is, let's say, again, depending on what exactly how they implement this uh, this layer. Imagine, for example, you have a network that implements uh, state charting. And because of the fact that uh, a contract only, I mean, a shard only controls and holds the state of specific state, you know, contracts, not the other contracts, uh, not the other, other. So, so, so the state's basically confined within, within what gives a shard. It basically gives you Sort of it puts certain limitations on what can you can do with yes. uh with state sharding. Yes. For example, in certain designs, you actually have to do asynchronous calls. Yep. And and which means that if let's say if I'm a user and if I'm sending a transaction, I basically have to sometimes in certain designs where you know you have to basically wait, lock the state of a contract yep. and then wait for that lock to be released to be able to process something else. And that that basically puts a constraint on the user side. In certain, you know, designs, you actually user has to send five transactions to be able to process. It limits uh, composability in some cases. Exactly, exactly. So, so there, there are all sorts of, you know, depending also depending on how, you know, what sort of underlying in, in technology is and how that engineering part is implemented. It can also impose certain restrictions on, on sort of what sort of applications you can run and why certain applications cannot be run in a, in a, in a, in a, in a user friendly manner. That I definitely believe that, and this is exactly why when we implement sharding, we felt that uh, we should try to approach in a way where state is almost everywhere. So you don't have to worry about, oh, my contract is here and I have to talk to some other contract which doesn't exist in my shard. So we want to make sure that uh, you know the sort of contracts are sort of spread everywhere. 
so that you don't have to worry about uh, finding the state of a sovereign contract that doesn't exist in your shark. Yes. The other thing that we felt uh, would be important, and this is something that we are doing uniquely in some sense, uh, is that all the uh, you know, chains that today are looking towards sharding, including Ethereum, they're all looking from the system perspective. So for example, how can we do our design our consensus mechanism or, or how can we design a roll-up mechanism to be able to process certain things in a certain way? So it's most of these are is at the network layer. We felt that there could be something to be done at the at the language layer itself. Mm-hmm. For example, if you write your contract in a way that it becomes shardable, or certain contracts are by default shardable, yeah. but other contracts are not that much. Yeah. So it also makes when when you do that, it makes your transaction processing ability much. Yeah, better. yeah, yeah. I totally get this. This is very valuable, right? Because, for example, one of the things that resulted in the uh, existence of the Flow blockchain, right? So, you know, when you look at the work that's been done at Dapper Labs with Roham and Mick and his team over there, you know, they very much learned through the experience of NFT Crypto Kitties. They learned that Ethereum. You know, and Ethereum sharding was going to potentially in the future produce more complexity with respect to kind of the transaction boundary and the application design, right? So in a sense, having abstractions in the language construct that enable you to specify then enables you to have much more power and flexibility, you know, so you can kind of optimize for uh, performance with shardability using kind of almost a stateless uh, architecture, or you can kind of hybridize, you know, or you could go with the stateful architecture, right, and opt for kind of, a, you know, less sharding and maybe possibly less performance, but like, you know, in a way that becomes a design aesthetic. So, so I, I definitely see that as a powerful uh, set of design decisions and a way of surfacing the power at the developer layer, which I think is is very astute. So you know, I, I, I definitely uh, it's so it's this is such an interesting conversation to have, right? Because you know, I think in a way there's so much technical power, and then there's also so much financial power. You know, uh, you know, on, on, so you you guys are a, a great dream team. You know, from that perspective, you know, and, and it's fun because in a way I'm kind of because of I'm kind of a DeFi head. I'm I'm definitely excited about both elements, right? So I, I I'd love to kind of like you know kick it over. Uh, you know, I think uh, you know Michael. Uh, you know, how what's your perspective in terms of how do you sort of um. How do you see the interaction with the technical advantages of the underlying platform? And how do you see kind of the process of uh, the developer ecosystem, uh, you know, from a fund manager perspective, right? Because obviously uh, one of the exciting, one of the funny things about that perspective is, is that um, different ecosystem funds have different rules, right? Like there are some ecosystem funds that are much more liberal and they can invest in anything. Right. And they, they some of the rules that they apply are things like, uh, you know, like if you can just sign this non-binding MOU that you're going to integrate with our chain eventually, you know, then here's the money. Right. That's one approach. Right. The other approach to that is more like, uh, you know, we want you to ship on our platform first and then like we'll give you some money. You know, and so it almost becomes more like a, a pure play, uh, you know, ecosystem development fund. Oftentimes that kind of comes uh, you know, either off the balance sheet or off the token of the project itself. So I, I guess I'd love to hear your philosophy, right? Because I think that, you know, typical kind of LP-driven funds, 
uh, kind of have a, a, a passion for investing in things that will grow and, and maybe a little less of a passion for, you know, things that will will help the mothership, right? So I guess I'm trying to figure out your perspectives on, on this tension. Sure. So, you know, when you look at what we're focused on, <clears throat> I mean, first of all, we're, we're, we're blessed to have a vibrant Zillica community of developers and folks that are truly interested in the growth of what we've been doing. Uh, you can see them quite active on social media. You can see them in the interactions with our team on the technological side and on the business side. And, and even in the way that current projects have grown, Switchio, Zanpool, Experts, et cetera, you know, it's not uncommon to see us working side by side with, with, with these guys, helping them work through solutions to the challenges that they have. And, and that's one of the things I think that stands out about us as a, as a protocol and us as a team is that we're willing to roll up our sleeves uh, side by side with them. Uh, that said, you know, there are multiple protocols globally and some of them solve problems that others don't and others have ideas that, that resolve things that others do. Uh, but for us, you know, one of the things, again, that, that you see us is we're very pragmatic and not dogmatic about how things are. You know, we don't need majority control of a company to invest with it. And we don't need them to 100% do only everything exclusive with Zillica. You know, so yep. that, we know that there's a lot of cross-chain functionality that's either here or coming down the pike. Uh, we're working on our own uh, Zill ETH bridge in, within itself Great. because still, to, to your earlier point, Ethereum is still where 90% plus of, of the dApps are developed. You know, when I, when I helped found uh, Ether Capital, it was 96% sure. of the dApps at the time. Yep. Um, and, and, and even with all the pros and cons, there's a lot of development uh, across the board. So, so for us, it's really about finding good, solid teams, uh, folks that are really building out the right solutions for decentralized finance, for financial inclusion, for really helping to bring these solutions about. And then it comes down to, uh, is there an opportunity for us as, as, a, as a technological team at, at Zilliqa Protocol to collaborate with those uh, people and, and put something together that's meaningful? You know, from, from an investment perspective, we are flexible in terms of revenue sharing or profit sharing or equity or tokens. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's just we want to make sure that there's relative uh, and relevant skin in the game that provides both near-term value and then kind of longer-term value longer tail value. So that's kind of how looking at it from a very macro top-down perspective. But again, if we meet with some folks that are just starting up, but they have a brilliant idea, uh, and we know that integration with Zilliqa may be one year down the line or two years down the line, it doesn't mean that we'll say, no, 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 we're not, we're not ready to, to work with you yet. What we know is that, look, we want to help these people see, be successful and make sure that at the same time we're collaborating with them to facilitate going to Zilka or working with us in addition to any other chain. Because you know, I, I don't necessarily think there's going to be one chain that rules them all. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's making sure that you have the right pipes and the right rails in place to deliver solutions to the community. And, and for us, having a pretty vibrant community within, within Zilliqa, being located here in Singapore with a, a strong roots in Southeast Asia, uh, and ASEAN and, and India, uh, we think that that's, that's a perfect place and we think that's a perfect uh, philosophy and that's why we really work well. So, you know, when, when you look at us, we're, we're certainly, like I said earlier, we're, we're looking to be really pragmatic about how we invest in things, how we collaborate with folks, and then ultimately look to build and add value uh, across the space. That's in some ways that kind of uh, 
uh, pragmatism is is really uh, it's very healthy and it's it's so interesting, right? Because when I see a couple of like you know Zilliqa Capital co-founders like yourselves, like you know, in a way, ideally they're sort of a, a kind of a McCartney-Lennon thing going on or a, a Jobs-Wozniak thing going on, you know, where there's ideally, and in a way, it's a way of bridging what I call heaven and earth, right? Which is that, in a sense, uh, I once gave a talk uh, in front of a group of developers that was called, Technology is Beautiful, but business is stupid, right? And uh, <laughs> like the the mood is is that there you know there is a healthy pragmatism that comes from business, right? And I think the thing that I think people may misunderstand is that DeFi has actually kind of moved into a phase of pragmatism and not purism, right? And I, when I when I even say that, I'm talking about Ethereum DeFi, right? So like, you know, people think and misunderstand uh, Ethereum to be a bunch of purists. And I think it makes sense that they misunderstand it, right? Because when you look at the beautiful Ethereum logo, it's like the perfect geometry and it's sort of this very cosmic kind of form and it's fully transparent and it has all these qualities, right? And so people misunderstand it. But the thing that's incredibly true is that there's so many dependencies in DeFi on things like price oracles, right? And everybody understands that a price oracle is not on chain. Like there's no hard on chain proof of the price, right? So there's only like slashing and staking and all these other kind of really complicated human social mechanics because they're just doing business, right? So in a sense, like the business pragmatism is where heaven kind of touches the earth and, and kind of actually manages to get their hands dirty, right? So it's, it's, it's not about purism. It's about kind of pragmatism. So I appreciate that tone. I mean, Amrit, do you, do you agree as a technologist? Uh, I agree, you know, there's always <laughs> been, you know, if, if you talk to many people in the, in the, in the, in the world, you know, blockchain space today, they will say, Ethereum is a protocol, uh, Zilliqa is a protocol. Uh, you know, they, they are not businesses. Uh, you know, yes. I, I heard someone one day saying that, you know, we provide you something, you build businesses out of it. Mm, mm. Uh, but in a way, that protocol has to be sustained. Uh, you know, you need to be able to support that <laughs> yes. system. And that, that that requires money, that requires capital. Yeah. And, and you know, so in a way, and today, you know, most, you know, if you go back, I don't know, maybe maybe two years ago or three years ago, most dApps were not, we, we consider as fun projects, you know, today, Dabs are not not just not just fun projects. They are actually real businesses. Yes, because they are making money. Yes, and, and yes. money sustains you know a considerable sum of money every month. And so saying that you know we are just a protocol and we enable X Y and Z, that's not that's not a strong argument because. I, okay, I dig I, it. I'm not sure I, I fully believe in that argument. Yes, we are. Uh, you know, we provide a platform layer, but in the end. We are supporting a lot of ecosystems and we are supporting a lot of economies and that that cannot just be just be that. Yeah, I think yeah, it's it, great because like uh, I, it's nice to hear that from your side as well, right? Because the thing that is always so interesting is that dynamic tension between, you know, like uh, I think if you read the book, uh, if you read Plato's Republic, like he really started to uh, expound upon the idea of these sort of these ideals, right? This These perfect uh, untouchable, uh, formless, unmanifest images, right? So, it, it, you know, in, in a sense, he created object-oriented programming, right? Because he created the perfect kind of class of like a horse, 
of which all real horses are kind of inherent, right? They're all kind of, uh, inst they're all instances. They're all instances of this kind of like abstract, perfect canonical horse, right? And so, you know, but the thing that's so funny is that the real horses have injuries. They have like, they're just, they're all kind of like these funny living creatures with their properties, right? So I, I think that that tension is very vital. It's a very important tension, right? Because, you know, when I invest as a VC, uh, I I want to see heaven and earth, right? Like I want to see this brilliant future of perfection and these unicorns, you know. But I also want to hear about like how grindingly hard it is right now, and like how how you're delivering something that people value, you know. And sometimes what you're delivering is kind of I don't know, like weird or comical or strange or kind of you know just messy, right? Like the, the, the so so I think I think that's the, that's the balance. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not just an algorithm anymore. It's not just a protocol anymore. I think there's this much more to it. Yeah, yeah, Michael, uh, jump yeah. in, jump no, in. No, no, I know. I, I think I think that's right, and and that's also kind of that same thought of the heaven and earth, and 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 in kind of the friction and tension is what what drives us to assemble the team at Zilka Capital. You know, certainly between the two of us, Amri and I, we both come. Amri comes from the technological background, I come from the financial background, but we've crossed over at multiple points over time and, and it creates kind of a really great dynamic for the two of us. Uh, but above and beyond that, you know, you look at the, the team on the board and the folks that, that we've assembled there uh, from people such as you, who clearly you can balance both worlds and, you, and you're very thoughtful about the things that you do. You know, you look at, uh, you know, Jehan Chu, who we have a table from Kinetic Capital in Hong Kong. Uh, ben Sai, uh, a guy I actually used to work with at Alliance Bernstein, so he's another kind of classic financial guy who crossed over, and now he's a uh, you know managing partner and president of Wave Financial, and they you know, they recently tokenized I think about six hundred million of, of whiskey in Japan, which again real world applications of <laughs> yeah, of amazing. things that we deal with, uh, and then you know we have Nishal Shetty, who's the CEO of Wazirx, India's largest crypto exchange and a Binance subsidiary. Uh, and then uh, Professor David Lee from here in Singapore, uh, one of the thought leaders in blockchain from Singapore University of Social Sciences. And then Mason Borda, the CEO of Tokensoft, which is, you know, affiliated with Coinbase. So, you know, all these people, they're, they're entrepreneurs, they're innovators, they're technologists in multiple ways. And, and I think that, that, that friction will certainly help us as we're being thoughtful about what to invest in and how we look to build out the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I think that this kind of creative tension is incredibly valuable. Absolutely, as I describe kind of the Jobs-Wozniak relationship or I, you know, like oftentimes in those historical stories, you know, you have uh, Steve Jobs making promises and then you have Steve Wozniak kind of in these very uncomfortable situations. It's like, oh, I've made a contract for a single player Pong, you know, with Nolan Bushnell from Atari, you know, and now yeah. I hope you can deliver the demo by Monday, you know, this kind of, these yeah. kind of like incredible stories, you know, and obviously with, you know, uh, McCartney and Lennon, you see these incredible tensions where in some ways their songwriting became almost about outdoing one another, <laughs> you know, so there was, yeah. there was, it was definitely like a real tension. And, I, you know, to me, I think those tensions, yeah. uh, as long as there ma maintains kind of this, uh, you know, 
this mutual respect and this kind of desires, I think that that's really where the rubber meets the road, supposedly, right? Or I, I don't know if those those are the right metaphors, but I, yeah. no, no, I, I think that's right. And even, you know, like one of the other folks on our board is, is Jiho Zerlin, one of the co-founders of Sky Mavis, Axie Infinity, yeah. and with the growth of NFT and gaming as well. It's it's kind of this whole balance, uh, you know, to your point about Wozniak coming up with an idea and Jobs saying, okay, now make it work. Um, you know, it, it, we, we feel there's a great group around the table and, and Omri is very entrepreneurial uh, thinking with the technology hat on and, and it's just, I think it's just a great team uh, all around and a great protocol. Well, I think the thing that made the Job Wozniak thing amazing is that there was such strength on both sides, right? Because the thing that's so interesting when I talk about heaven and earth, right, which is that heaven is very pure and the technology is very pure. But the thing that's so funny about Steve Jobs is that he also, he did both himself, right? In the sense of he was not a hardcore technologist, but his visions were very giant. Like he was not, he was not kind of just a hustler. Like he was a real visionary, you know? And of course that made life very difficult for everyone around him. But like, you know, it, it, it worked. Yeah, it was very, you know, so that's interesting. Uh, you know, he's a very demanding person. Um, so in terms of kind of the speaking of like, you know, I'm a very uh, big proponent of this idea, like like the big idea, the big idea, right? So I'd love I'd love to kind of get, you know, each of you to kind of express sort of the vision that you got that you have, you know, and and th you know think about it in this kind of multi-decade time course, like what you know, what are what are you kind of interested in and willing to contribute decades towards, you know, the realization of? I mean, from my angle, I definitely would like to see, I, I don't think in, in, in terms of platform layer, I don't think none of the chains today, I mean, maybe some may game to be so. I think we are quite far from, you could say, to be able to provide people with the right technology and easy. I mean, today, I mean, if you talk about Talk to anyone. They have you have to tell them uh, how blockchain works before they actually can even use any of these systems. Uh, you know, when I was doing research, you know, people have done tons of research on removing passwords because they wanted to researchers have wanted to get rid of passwords for a long time, and and they couldn't because they knew that it's going to be very painful for people to to get rid of passwords. And today we are we have ended up in a world where there's no passwords and you end up uh, handling private and public keys. And we are seeing that conflict today where you see when you remove password, people now actually see the, 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 the sort of challenge that regular folks who don't even understand what a public key is, they have to know how to manage those things. Mm. Every other day you see scams. You know, again, you could you could call these people, I don't know, not smart enough to, to not handle private keys, but that expecting people to really understand a public key and private keys is too much. Yes. Uh, and in asking people to say, oh, um, understand how blockchain works is like asking anyone today how your how AWS handles handles your website. It's it's not reasonable to ask those questions to your users. And I think DeFi in a way has made it even more difficult. Uh, you know, in that in that sense there's so much of lingo that people have to understand. Of course people do see that, you know, you can now you can you don't have to put your money into your bank account. You can take that money out and put that into DeFi, you know, I don't know, AMMs or you know, yield generating products, but to, you know, in order to be to, to be able to participate in those systems, it's very very hard. Uh, it's very hard. You know, even for new people, even for people who know what they're doing, you know, it is still it, it still requires them to actually go and read documentations. Uh, when I download an app from App Store, I don't read how how to use Facebook app. 
uh, but people do, you know, DeFi application users actually have to read manuals and docs. And I think we are far from a point where we could say very easily that here's, here's, here's an app that you can easily go and download from App Store and you'd be, you'd be able to use that app without worrying about any lingo at all. And, and the technology has to improve to a point where it goes in the background. Uh, and you don't even see that blockchain is being used behind the scenes. And I, I don't think we are quite there yet. Nice. So much like Steve Jobs extolled the virtues of personal computing, it sounds like you're extolling the virtues of personal blockchaining. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nice. I, I, I like it. I like it. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, your, your, your grand picture vision? You know, so for me, it's more mission driven than anything else. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of democratization of access and financial inclusion. This, since my days back at Alliance Bernstein and the other adventures I've been in and, and certainly here. So, you know, being here in the, in the ASEAN region uh, with India in the background uh, in, in a certainly large player in the space, you see such large numbers of unbanked and underbanked. And so for us, what I'd like to achieve from a big picture is being able to deliver solutions that really help people be active and live their best life uh, from a financial perspective, from, from a gaming perspective, from anything. So kind of building on Omri's personal blockchainification, if you want to take it in that way, for me, it's really about financial inclusion, getting people involved that aren't, uh, and being able to have a seat at the table and then the same goes for investors with us, uh, making sure that those folks and people in our community um, are participating with us uh, in the benefits that we're doing as we're growing good investments and growing the ecosystem. So for me, financial inclusion drives both ways. It's one, helping folks get access to products and, and an ecosystem that they don't currently have access to uh, and democratization of that access. But then secondarily, from an investing perspective, making sure that we're sharing uh, the benefits of good investments with our investors. And, and that's uh, kind of the, the dual-sidedness uh, of kind of what, what I'd like to achieve from a macro perspective and a big picture. Oh, it's wonderful. And to me, it definitely deeply resonates because for me, wealth inequality is a economic externality. It certainly is kind of a cost that's borne by the financially uh, disenfranchised, you know, and obviously they didn't consent to enter into such a, a construct, right? It's just that the network effects have played against a certain group and they kind of remain disenfranchised, dis disincentivized, disintermediated, you know, they generally end up being dissed. So like, I would say that the thing that, it, you know, I'd love to kind of share with you and this, you know, this is obviously something we can get into more detail after the show is, uh, you know, one of our uh, portfolio companies at Gumi Crypto's Capital is uh, YGG, Yield Guild Gaming, which is actually a, a guild that is in the DeFi and NFT space. It's based in the Philippines, and they actually uh, operate in the play-to-earn ecosystem. Uh, and what you actually have is you have people who used to drive uh, Grab Taxi, like Uber, except now they're driving NFTs. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a fascinating uh, thing. People are gaining their families' uh, life, livelihoods you know, effectively by playing Axie Infinity and similar games. So, you know, I think Jiho's uh, other kind of ZC board member that you talked about, uh, you know, would also vouch for 
this company and you know i think it's they have a very bright and exciting future uh so it's called ygg yield guild games and i have a very nice uh episode of my show uh miko bits show dedicated to uh gabby the founder of igg who's a terrific serial entrepreneur in the philippines so i think there's a regional play there's an nft play there's a you know there's a whole bunch of elements in it for you i think and they're they're chain agnostic so i think they could they could certainly uh benefit from what you've described so you know uh, yeah yeah so ha- happy to uh you know, talk about things and opportunities like that, uh, you know, and we can, we can, which is fantastic. I mean, that's, that's the network effect. And it's certainly right in the bailiwick of what we're looking for and that our community is interested in. Yeah. Hugely powerful network effects. And that, 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 and the thing that we love about that is that the product market fit use case, it could not be more compelling, right? Which is, you know, there's so many stories that come out, like people, joined Axie Infinity. They're now making more money than they made driving Grab Taxi, you know, in Indonesia or in the Philippines. Those are the major player bases they have for play to earn. And then the thing that is fascinating is is that they received massive economic stimulus from the Uniswap airdrop, right? Because they were using Uniswap to convert the Axie SLP token into Ethereum and USDC and, you know, eventually off-ramping to, you know, uh, Indonesia rupiah or to Philippine peso. So, like, a really interesting, uh, you know, because of their use of Uniswap, suddenly they got uh, an airdrop that was larger than, you know, the U.S. proposed stimulus check, you know. And if they, and if they didn't sell it, it would be worth... 10 times that today. So like, you know, life-changing money. Like, you know, in the Philippines, if you're a former grab taxi driver, that is life-changing money. Like that that is epic, epic life-changing money. So so I I think uh, these are wonderful use cases. And I think your description of a desire to contribute to financial inclusion, I think is absolutely not misplaced. Because for me, when you look at open source software, Open source software is the uh, competition for consent. So really, you know, everything is consent based. And if you really don't like it, you can just fork it and go somewhere else. Right. So to me, like everyone who's participating as a beneficiary in open source is doing so on their consent. Right. So we're going to have a much more consensual financial system and inclusion is just like it necessary and obvious side effect. Right. Which is that inclusion is just part and parcel of consent right which is people will just use they're just going to use whatever thing serves them the best right and they they deserve that and every system should compete for that consent they should all compete and try to be the best system with the lowest prices and the best features and the best applications the best ecosystems you know and if they can attain those goals then they deserve to exist and they deserve to continue serving the world i agree yeah, wonderful. It's a great, it's a great vision. Uh, so I guess uh, this one might be an Amrit question, which is uh, kind of Zillica roadmap, right? So I'd love to kind of get any kind of upcoming milestones, you know, any kind of technical updates, you know, any improvement proposals. What what should yeah, we so look we, forward to? Yeah, so you know, um, we launched our minute in 2019. So uh, roughly speaking, you know, the platform is around two three years old. Yeah. Uh, now we are at a stage where we have sort of you know different levels of technical work that we have to do one is to make sure that the platform keeps you know, improving because as when you launch some software it never stops 
So you, know, you need to make sure that that keeps on improving. So for example, one of the key work that we're looking at, something that we're, I'm personally very excited about, is we, we recently uh, you know, published a paper at a conference called PLDI, uh, Programming Language Design and Implementation, where the idea was to be able to sort of write, uh, sort of determine a way uh, through a static analysis uh, that certain contracts uh, can have properties that would make them more shardable than other contracts. And then what we end up doing is, uh, I mean, if you look at most contracts today, the way it works is that in a sharded architecture, the way mostly it works is that you have a shard, you have a contract that basically sits in one shard, and all transactions destined to that shard goes to that, uh, goes to, sorry, destined to that, trans uh, that contract goes to that shard. So basically one contract all transactions coming to that contract will always get handled in one single shot. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we felt that maybe one way to sort of optimize this is to be able to actually deploy the same contract in multiple shots. And then different users could send transactions to different shots, but to the same contract and yet be able to process transaction parallel. Mm. So in the previous model, let's say, Miko, you send a transaction, I send a transaction to transfer, let's say, USDT tokens both these transactions would go to the same shot, but now you could actually send in parallel two different shots and be able to uh, process transaction parallel. So this is something that we felt that, uh, and again, there's, there's a, you, you need to be able to identify some of those contracts and those certain properties that the contracts may have to be able to do that. So uh, we are looking into, we have published a paper on this, and then now we are looking into sort of implementing that idea. Again, there's one example of an optimization that we would like to do to be able to improve throughput and lower latency. Uh, we have also so far uh, have implemented only any um, uh, what I call the interpreter of the language. So we have the smart contract language, and we have an interpreter that interprets that language. And now we are looking into obviously, as you can imagine, you know, interpreters are much slower compared to compilers. So we are now looking into actually building a virtual machine uh, that will be backed by LLVM. Uh, which will hopefully increase the processing time of uh, smart contract by Well, and I think our experience with the Java platform does demonstrate that there is a mechanism of a bytecode intermediated JIT compilation that can yeah. actually outperform, yeah. right? So exactly. ultimately, you can outperform on an interpreted language, which is something that like really pisses off people to hear, but it's but it turns out it actually turns out to be true, right? That it that that an interpreted exactly. language can outperform a hard coded binary language, right? Which is it, which should not be the case, but it turns out that machines are actually pretty good at, at optimizing uh, uh, execution flow. So so this has been an absolutely wonderful episode. Uh, you know, I'm very happy to have this call with you guys, and you know, let's. Uh, let, let's wrap the show here. Uh, you know, a happy. Uh, where where should people go to find out more about uh, Zilliqa? Well, we have our website. Uh, most of our team members, including myself, we are very active on Twitter as 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 anyone in the crypto world. Uh, feel free to ping us, uh, and then we would love to answer any questions that you may have. Yeah, fantastic. So so so, 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 so dot com for the protocol, and then uh, Capital dot com for uh, for the capital. Entity. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, if, thank if you, you so much. Money, you need to go to Michael. Uh. Yes, <laughs> that I like. That I like. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, thanks very much. Uh, great episode. Thanks, Miko. Thank, thank you very much, Miko. Thank you. Bye.